Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary has been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what had what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but keep her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Thank you, Michelle. I love it. Y'all clap for everything. It's amazing. Um, I remember when I was in college, I listened to uh, this sermon uh, by Tim Keller that he spoke a long time ago on this word, Emmanuel. And I remember back then it changed just completely the way that I thought about the season and about a word and a thing that I had heard a lot in this verse that we know a lot. Um, and I felt it was very appropriate this season that we would kind of wrestle with this same word because we all know what Emmanuel means. We've all heard this passage before. We already heard um, what it means. But although it sounds simple and sounds very straightforward, I wonder if we've ever really taken time to ask ourselves what it means that God is with us. So ask yourself this question this season. This is kind of what we're going to do for the next four weeks. Okay, this, and you see it on the screen. Click. What does it mean, right? Like, what does it do in my life that Christmas is all about the fact that Jesus, that God in Jesus becomes God with us? There's something that happens in this event, that God in Jesus during this Christmas season becomes a God with us. What does that mean for us? We want to wrestle with that because I don't think we do very often or if we don't or even if we do, we want to do it even deeper maybe. Because the message of Christmas is this. It's very simple. The message of Christmas is that the creator and the king of the universe becomes a human being, full stop. God of the universe, creator of all things, becomes a human being. The same God who spoke worlds into being the same God whose holiness and perfection is so crazy that if we were to see his face like unveiled, we would go poof into a puff of smoke perhaps, right? That same God who has that kind of power, holiness, and everything else in this season comes to this world to become like us and to be with us. This is the meaning of Christmas. Everything else. All the really good stuff, the peace on earth, the joy to all, the community, the love, and all of it, it flows out of this very fact that the point of this season is that the creator God becomes a with us God and therefore a human being. And so this season, we're gonna wrestle with this question and then therefore the secondary question that I think comes from this, and you'll see it on the screen. Then what do we do about this? What is our response? How do we handle it? How do we do how will this impact us? Because make no mistake, we, it must impact us. It cannot not impact us. How will we, or how are we, allowing this to fundamentally shape 
our lives and change us because it must. Because I think one mis- big misnomer about Christmas is that I think we think that we can go through the season without it bringing something out of us. But I would argue that it cannot not bring a reaction out of us. Like one thing that cannot happen is there's no such a thing as a passive reaction to Christmas. There's no such a thing as like, oh, that's kind of cool reaction to Christmas. Because I think if that is our reaction, if that is our hope, then I think it suggests two different things that we have to kind of wrestle with. I think it suggests that maybe we don't really know what Christmas is all about or we choose to ignore it because it costs too much to actually think about what it in, what indeed actually means. So over the next four weeks, right, we're going to dive deep into what it means that Jesus becomes God with us. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a big picture, kind of looking at all three parts together, Emmanuel, God, the with, and then the us. And then we're going to spend the next three weeks kind of diving into each one of those aspects. What does it mean that Jesus is God? What does it mean that he's with? And what does it mean that us? And we're going to take different parts of scripture and try to understand and kind of unpack all that for us so that this Advent season, perhaps maybe for the first time in a long time, we will then really know what Christmas means and then hopefully have it impact us the way that it does. So again, What does it mean for us that Christmas means that God of the universe in Jesus becomes a with us God? So let's jump right in our first uh, God, and you'll see it on the screen. Um, All throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts particularly, we are told explicitly over and over and over again that Jesus is God. Now, I know that all of you in here, to you, this isn't big news. You've known this. You've grown up with this, most of you growing up in the church. And actually, in many ways, the world also will mostly either agree or acknowledge, right, that the Bible and the Christians say that Jesus is God. We've heard it over and over and over again. We hear it in John 1 that Jesus is the Word, right, who was with God and was God in the, in the beginning, right? And that nothing that comes into being, right, was, uh, came into being without God. We, we know this. We know that this God, this word, pitched his tent, tabernacled, moved into the neighborhood, depending on how you look at it, right, to become like us. We know this. If you study Jesus' life, if you look at his life and the things that he says, he makes it a very, very clear point to tell everyone that he is God. If you know my daughter, one thing that my daughter is great at, Kara, is she announces everything to the world, whether you ask her or not. It's kind of what Jesus is doing. She tells everyone that she's in the room. She tells everyone that she has to go to the restroom, like all these things, and we go, nobody asked you, Kara, but she does it anyway. Jesus kind of is like this. He declares through everything that he does that he is God. Every time he forgives sins, he's saying, I am God. Every time he does all these different things, he's saying, I am God. I'm not just another human being. I am God in the flesh. And in some ways, he's saying, and what are you going to do about that? And as you know, because Jesus did this, right? The crazy thing about Christmas, I don't know if you know this, is that the disciples actually believe, and you'll see it on the screen, right? Now, many people in this time didn't, but the disciples of Jesus, they all believed him. And the ones who didn't believe him, they ended up murdering him in many ways, right? So though the disciples have struggled at times with this idea that Jesus is God, they in the end worshipped him. And then they lived as he says. Now, I mentioned again another very mundane or regular thing that all of y'all know Because you have to understand and we have to understand that the first century Jews, which is what the disciples were, were the last people on the planet who would have ever believed that a human being could be God. Jews back in those days believed that there was one God, Yahweh, and that God being a human being was an impossibility of all impossibilities. 
And never mind the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, this little country, you know, homeboy, right, you know, from, from the north, you know, back uh, in, in those days, the north is a country um, rather than the south for us, that kind of thing. But that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph, would be God himself, would be literally the most blasphemous and craziest thing that anybody would think to believe, but they in the end believed it. The disciples might have believed that, yeah, maybe Jesus was the Messiah. They could have seen that, maybe. But God, no. The Jews, the Israelites, were strict monotheists, one God-believing people. And the fact that the disciples believed that Jesus was God is just an utterly insane thing. And we know that they believed because eventually they were willing to die and did die for Jesus. Did you know that all the disciples, right, after Jesus resurrects and then ascends, almost all of them, right? They go to a different country, taking the gospel to another place. And in the end, they were either killed or imprisoned for life so that they could protect the truth that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was God himself in the flesh and not just some prophet or some teacher. And again, I, I, I told you about the sermon that I had listened to from Tim Keller and he kind of understood this. And the craziest thing is, and you have to kind of think, The crazy thing about the disciples believing that Jesus is God is that they lived with him for three or more years. And if you know anything about your family, you can convince a lot of people a lot of things about who you are, but you can't really fool your parents or your your brothers or sisters or your family that you are cooler or nicer or kinder or whatever than you think you are. Jesus could have gone around and maybe convinced other people that he was indeed perfect, but he would have never convinced and never been able to fool the disciples that he lived with every single day for many, many years, for a few years, that he was perfect and God in the flesh, and yet they still believed and their life showed it. Jesus being God impacted the disciples. And I think what I'm trying to say in the long run is that it ought to impact us in the same manner. So we got to ask ourselves then another question. You know I love questions. Click. What could have possibly led these, led these people to believe that Jesus was God? Like what could have actually made them think that this was true? What did they see? What did they hear? What did they experience that would actually convince them that Jesus was God in the flesh? Right? Now if you read the Gospels, you see that he struggles. They ask all the time, like, who is this? There's a bunch of different things. We're actually probably going to look at it um, uh, throughout the season. Like, when they struggle with who indeed this God could be. But through understanding and seeing Jesus' power, his authority, some miracles, maybe most importantly, a love that they had never seen nor experienced before. And then throughout all of that, they realized that everything that Jesus was, everything that he did actually matched and made sense of the claims that he was actually making about himself. And so throughout the end, by the time Jesus resurrects and then ascends, they realized that they were looking, not just at another human being, but click, as Tim Keller says, that they were looking at God through the filter of a human being, and that just changed everything for them. The disciples realized that the only answer that made sense of all the data they had collected in being with Jesus was that indeed he had to be the Son of God, that he was exactly who he said he was. If you know C.S. Lewis and some other thinkers, you know that they will tell you that if you actually met Jesus, if he was like here and you met him, that essentially you would walk away thinking one of three things. Jesus only left you a few choices if you actually came into his presence and dealt with him. And you'll see them on the screen, right? The first is that you would have decided he is indeed who he says he is. 
He's God. Crazy enough as it is, you're looking at God in the flesh. The second thing that you would have thought if it wasn't that was that he's a complete liar. And the third thing that you would have thought is he's a straight up lunatic. That's the kind of person Jesus was. Jesus is, yes, he, we'll talk about it in a little bit. He does come as a baby and there's all these things that we love about him. But Jesus Christ himself, walking around the times that he did, said such crazy and audacious and ridiculous things that if you actually met him, if you actually just took this, you know, the, the things that we have, the events, the facts, and the evidence we have, then you would have thought either one of the three and there were really no other choices. Jesus wouldn't let it be any other way. And so the disciples, though insane as it might sound to them, for them, believing that Jesus was God himself was the less crazier, if you will, conclusion than believing that he's a liar or a lunatic because his actions and his things and the, the way that he lived and the things that he said would not allow for it. Now, you know all this. This is, a re- this is pretty much a review course for most of you, I think. But then here's the question again. If we, through scripture, through historical evidence and all these things, are dealing with the same facts, the same evidence, the same stories, the same all these things that the people in Jesus' time were dealing with, then it must demand from us the same thing that it demanded from them. And you'll see it on the screen. That we will either believe that Jesus is God himself and therefore worship him and give him our full allegiance. Jesus, you are my one and only. I will live your way and no other way. No one else will tell me anything that's better than yours. I will follow you. You will get my priority. You will get my centrality, all of it. I will align everything in my life to you and with you. We'll either make that decision or we'll decide that Jesus is a complete fraud and a nut and we'll just ignore him because he's not worthy of our consideration. Family, Christmas means that there's really no other way to engage with this season because in my opinion, Jesus does not allow for any other engagement with this season. It's all really interesting because although this season of Christmas is generally known for the pretty lights and the wonderful jolly songs, sometimes they drive you crazy, but they're still really great, I think, in the long run. Although we're known, this season is known for this. The reason why Christianity is what it is and the reason why we must choose to believe that either Christ is everything or Christ is nothing is because of Christmas. Christmas is the reason that Jesus demands all or nothing. It's either all in or nothing at all. Christmas is the reason why many people will look at us and say we're too exclusive, that we demand people say Jesus is Lord and Savior and that's it and there's no other. And people will say, y'all are too uptight. But know that this Christmas is the reason why it is this way. Because if Jesus is God in the flesh, come to us to be with us, then we must deal with it this way. See, other religions in the world will tell you that indeed, their teachers will tell you, all you gotta do is be good, be moral, be kind, have good ethics, and you'll be all right. But Jesus says, no. Jesus coming to be with us in Emmanuel tells us that you and I, we cannot save ourselves. 
that our wretchedness, our sin, and all of this is so terrible that we cannot save ourselves, that no goodness or no morality, no ethics will ever be good enough. Christmas tells us that we need a savior or it's bust. Christmas tells us that we need God to save us or we're toast. Christmas tells us that we need the son of God to become one of us, live the life that we could not live perfectly, and then die in our, in, on our behalf or we are nothing. So though it may sound harsh to you this morning, this season demands in so many ways that it's either Jesus and Christmas is right and the only way to live and to think and to be or it's all a big old lie and we can just stop and move on. This is what it means that Jesus is God. Well, let's move on then. Secondly, Jesus is the God who is with. This is where things become a little softer and a little nicer. I know we started off a bit rough this morning. This great God, creator of the universe, then makes, him in, makes himself in such a way that somehow he can call us, call himself the with us God. Now let me make a clarification that's really important here. There's a big difference between knowing God and then being with God. And there's a big difference between experiencing God and also, therefore, being with God. Let me say that again. There's a big difference between knowing who God is and then being with God. And there's a big difference between experiencing God, which we do a lot of, and then also being with God. Here's how I know this. If you know in the Old Testament, whenever God's presence comes, right? Whenever God's presence is alive physically within the earth, it was terrible and terrifying. There's many, many examples. I'll just highlight two. You'll see them on the screen. With Moses, every single time they were going across the desert, it was in pillars of fire. With Job, you know, God came in a whirlwind. I just found these on Google. I hope I'm not, uh, hope I'm not copywriting things. I just found things that looked cool, right? Like a tornado or a hurricane. For us here in Texas, I feel like if God's presence came like the Old Testament days, we would get torrential rain for days upon days upon days. I've never in my life been afraid of a weather forecast that tells us it's going to rain a lot, but I, when it tells us that it's going to torrentially rain, I get a little scared. Just saying. That's how God's presence came in the Old Testament. Every single time he showed up, there was terror and it was terrible in so many different ways. But now that Jesus has become Emmanuel, things change. Because Jesus comes as Emmanuel, he then takes away our sin by living and dying and resurrecting and ascending. We now, we are told, can be in the presence of God. We know this. What ends up happening is that this barrier, the holiness gap between God and us has been gapped. It's been bridged. He as the bridge. And now we can go and meet God. And now again, we as a church, we think this is not a big deal because we come to church every Sunday. We do all these things. We go to retreats, revivals, whatever conferences and all these things. But you have to know that this is a big, big, big deal. And here's how you know, okay? Ask yourself this. If you were ever to go to a concert or a sports game, what is the grand hope in the end? If you get tickets to a game, like you're going, you're going to see the Rockets, or if you get tickets to go see, I don't know, we're, we're in Houston, so I'll say Beyonce. I won't dare name BTS. Oh, I just said it. Um, if you get a ticket to go to that concert, what's the dream? Anyone? Meeting them. If you go to a Rockets game, you want to go and see James Harden and maybe Russell Westbrook and get an autograph. If you go to a Beyonce concert, you want to meet Beyonce, Right? 
That's the dream. You want to go back into the locker room. You want to go backstage, right? You want to go have a conversation, get a high five, get a hug, get an autograph. Why? It's because you and I know that there's a big difference between going to the game, seeing the game, experiencing the game, or going to the concert, seeing the concert, and experiencing the concert, and meeting with the person that you just experienced. There's a huge difference between the two. If you posted on Instagram a photo of Beyonce and she's this big, because you're sitting in the nosebleeds, versus if you posted a photo with Beyonce and she's standing next to you and you're getting a side hug or whatever, you would get much different reactions to the Instagram post. You know this. There's a big difference between just knowing and experiencing God to actually meeting with God. And what Jesus is telling us and what God is telling us in this Christmas season by being Emmanuel is that this God becomes with us, which means we can actually meet God in that way. Now, if you remember uh, B, who's our summer retreat speaker this past summer, um, he grew up in the hood in, in Baltimore. He told the story um, that the very first time he ever heard the gospel, he said yes, and he's always been a Christ follower ever since. And he, the reason why he said that that was the case was because when he first heard the gospel, he realized that God is not just a God who loves, but that God specifically loved him. He had heard all throughout his life that God is a God of love. But all of a sudden, one day, when he really heard the gospel, when someone really preached it to him, he realized that not only does not only God a loving God, God loved him, him. And he thought, because of the way that he grew up and the things that he had done, that nobody would ever love him that way. And when he realized that God loves him specifically, everything changed. This is what it means that Jesus is God with. Did you ever wonder why Jesus... Uh, too early. Did you ever wonder why Jesus comes as a baby? We have one back there, Azariah. He's three weeks old, crazy. And then we have a couple of Brielles. Uh, she's sick today. Uh, hopefully she gets better soon. We have, Chloe. we have a bunch of babies around. It's really amazing. But have you, have you ever wondered why Jesus comes as a baby and not like a pillar of fire or a tornado or something, you know, or torrential rain? Why does he come as a baby? Why make that choice? Why... I don't know, subject yourself to becoming a baby if you're God of the universe. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? Have you ever thought? The more and more I think about it, I think it's because what is more intimate and comfortable and with than a baby? Anything? Unless you're like deathly afraid that you're just going to drop the baby and then, you know, do terrible things. I think most of us want to hold babies. They're so cute. And let's be real. If we hold a baby, we all want the baby to do the little thing where they take their, their head and then they kind of snuggle it right in the corner right there. Yeah, if you do that, you get a, aw. And then, of course, you, you're jealous unless you, you know, like if I'm holding Chloe and she does that, right? And then you want to go hold Chloe, right? Because, well, Becky and Dan let everyone hold Chloe. That's why I'm using her as an example. But, like, you know, you go, oh, you want to hold Chloe? And then Chloe's kind of looking and she, like, looks at you like this. And you're trying to get her to, like, snuggle with you and you don't you feel a little, you, you just don't feel as good. It's because that's what babies are. Babies are completely vulnerable, completely holdable, and completely with a bull. There's something about them that, 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 that is like that. And anyone who's had kids, and you're, you're a kid, you were a kid once, trust me, there will come a day when your kids no longer do that. Either because they're too big, that day's coming for Christina, not too in the distant future, right? Or they just simply don't want to, but they're just not like that anymore. 
But Jesus comes as a baby to take away the gap, the barrier, the difference. Though God is this and demands that we take this fact that he is God this seriously, he then comes in a way that helps us to know he's not as scary or as terrifying as we think he is, but that indeed he is with us. Christmas means that Jesus in God, God in Jesus has come to be with you. There's no greater news than that. Take the two of the things together, that Jesus is God, this great big God, and then he comes like this, as the with God, and now you're talking some great, great news. Then third, the us in God with us. For those of you who are grammar nerds, you would have noticed that this word us is actually a very exclusive and particular word rather than being inclusive and complete. Notice, click, that is not God with all, but God with us. Us. Which means then you and I have to ask, who is the us? AKA, is you in or is you not? Because there indeed is an us. There indeed is an in and an out. You see it throughout scripture. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will make it, he says. There are parables that tell us that people come to the party and they don't get, in, they don't get let in because of certain different reasons. Jesus tells us himself, wide is the way that leads to destruction and many people find it. But narrow is the way that leads to life and very few find it. Like he's not, I told you, he doesn't mince words. He actually sells you these things. And so again, then we have to ask then, who is the us? Is you in or is you not? If you look at scripture then, I think the one word that I think kind of, I know it's generalization, but if the one word that kind of encapsulates the us, I think is simple that the us are the humble. Jesus, throughout his life, invites everyone to him. Come to me, all who are weary, he says, and a lot of other different things that invites people. The disciples, he invites them. That's the one thing about Jesus that's very different. He calls people to him. But if you read the stories and if you look and follow Jesus' life, only a certain few actually answer that call. And again, if you look at all the ones that do, they all have a characteristic of humility that marks all and in and every single one of them. In the beginning, it's shepherds, it's women. Throughout his life, it's outcasts, it's the sick, it's the desperate and the poor. The one who answer this call and come to Jesus and become with him are the ones who find themselves on the fringes of society. And rarely do you ever find the ones who are doing really well, who have a lot. Indeed, status and stuff are the ones who are with God. Have you noticed? Perhaps this is like the sneaky little secret that nobody wants to talk about in church. That just as Jesus was one without much stuff and status, the ones who are with him generally are without much stuff and status. And yet we find ourselves striving with everything that we have to go after the stuff that does not characterize the people who find themselves to be with Jesus. I hated these words growing up, but they're true. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus says. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that you can't be successful. 
or that you can't have things. But I think it is also very clear in scripture that the reason why the us are those who do not have much and do not have much power and status is because I think we'll all be first to admit that when we do have a lot of success and we do have a lot of stuff, we generally are quick to stop recognizing that we need a savior. The truth of the fact that we need a savior, we need a God, we need someone to pay for our sins because we cannot, that truth disappears the moment you start adding stuff and status to the things that you have. There's almost this inverse relationship, right? Kind of a, you know, kind of a contradicting relationship that the more you have and the more status you have, the less you think that you need a savior and you need a God. And the less you have, all of a sudden you, th- you, you start to realize, I need a savior and I need a God. Again, we talk about it all the time, that the very first sign of the kingdom breaking in is that we become poor in spirit. The ones who belong to Jesus are the ones who come without much to give. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, they are the ones who come without references. I say they're the ones who come without recommendation letters. The people who are with Jesus, the us, are the people who can never dare say, you owe me, Jesus, because I have, and then fill in the blank. The people who are with Jesus are those who come to Jesus with all their stuff, all their proof, and all the references. All those type of people generally turn away, and not aren't turned away, they turn themselves away. We saw this in the rich young ruler. But those who come with nothing and say, God, you don't owe me a single thing. Actually, you owe me death if we're being really honest because my sin deserves it. But anyways, here I am. Those are the us. I think Jesus tells us, all you need is nothing. But we find that nothing is really hard to have. Ask yourself, how often do I come to God with my arms full of all these things? How often do we approach this season saying, God, I've done so much, what, so much for you. What are you going to do for me? And even for those of us who are hurting and struggling, going through a lot, oftentimes we'll say, God, I've gone through so much. You owe me a blessing now, don't you? It's about time. Friends and family, the us, the us that are with God are those who come with no references, no pretense, no recommendations, with empty hands and empty pockets, saying, God, I need you to save me because your mercy is more than my sin. I need you to be the with God and by your grace and your mercy, make me a part of the us. So friends, family, RK, this season of Advent, here is what this is going to mean for us. And these are the kind of things, and these are the two big things that I want you to be doing, that I want us to be doing as a community throughout this season. They're pretty simple, but I think they're pretty crazy and dramatic if you really start to think about it, okay? Two things that I hope that we'll be focusing on for the rest of this month, more than we focus on the other things. Again, the other things aren't bad, but the things that we'll be focusing on most this month through the season of Advent, and they're this. First, we must want to be with God, want to be near him. Take a look and think about all that Jesus has done to be with us. He leaves his high throne. He leaves the perfect place. He leaves the fellowship 
And then he comes to this place to become one of us, takes on this flesh that bleeds and scars and bruises to be with us. He goes to the cross and then to the grave and then back in order to be with us. So I think our call is that we must say to God, I want to be with you, God. I do. I really do. Knowing that saying so will require a reaction and a response from you. Saying that indeed, if I want to be with you, God, it's either you or nothing. You get my full allegiance. You get my full trust. You get my full everything and my attention, not somebody else. It's saying, Jesus, I need you to enter every space of my life so that my life aligns with you. Which means you must say, whatever it is that my life is aligning to is no longer the centrality. Whether it's a person, a relationship, a goal, a dream, a hope, whatever. First, we must want to be with God and tell him so. And the second thing that we must do is to then embrace the with us Can I invite you into a challenge this Advent season? Can I invite you to throw off the perhaps half-hearted approach that we do oftentimes this season? Can I invite you to decide to take God for exactly who he is rather than keeping him at arm's length? For many of us in this room who've been here and who've known this story, I asked the senior boys today in DG, like, you know, what's this season? And I told them, it's, this season is my favorite and my least favorite a lot of times because we do it every year. It's kind of exhausting sometimes to try to be creative with the season to make it new for you, right? We celebrate, it becomes mundane, it becomes everything that we always do. And oftentimes this season we hold God like this at an arm's length. Will we decide to no longer do that? Will we decide to actually allow God to enter into all of our spaces, all of the areas of our lives? Allow God to enter our pains, our hurts, but also our dreams, our hopes, and our desires, all of it, and say, God, I want you to be fully with me. Can I challenge you to not allow God to be a fringe thing? To actually look at the reasons why we keep God at a distance rather than engaging him fully, and you know what these are. Can we challenge one another to admit the things that are keeping us from embracing God? For some of us, it's because it costs too much. Whatever, they, whatever it's going to cost. For some of us, it means that we have to actually break our nasty habits, or at least try to break the nasty habits. For some of us, it means that we have to admit that we'd rather be busy doing many other things. For some of us, it means we have to admit that someone else's desires, someone else's dreams, someone else's hopes are greater than mine. For many of the students, it means that your parents' wishes and what they want from you is more important than what God wants from you. And so on and so forth. Can we decide that whatever those things are, that we would indeed surrender them to God and say, God, no, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, it will surely not be greater than you being with us. As I mentioned earlier, C.S. Lewis, and we'll close with this, and others have noted that there's really only three possible responses to Jesus if you actually meet him. That anyone who met him, actually when he was alive, always had one of these three reactions. One either was terror and they run away. 
The second was they utterly hated him and wanted to kill him. Or the third is they fall on their face and they worship God because he is God. And so for us, perhaps the challenge this season is that if indeed God is, in, is, if God is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, then our response is saying that God is cool or interesting or nice or admirable. We would admit that those are false responses. That we would not approach this season and say, oh, I want to, I want to get to know God better because I think that is indeed another misnomer. Can we challenge ourselves to embrace God fully this season and deal with the fact that Jesus has come to be with us, that God is here and he has come to be with us and that Jesus himself does not allow in many ways that kind of response? That you would embrace completely him and that we would deal with it. Again, I've been referencing Tim Keller's sermon a lot because, again, it changed me in so many ways. And he asked this question, and the first time I asked myself, I asked myself this question, I was, I was just startled, and he says this. He says, either we give ourselves complete to Jesus or we're going to have to face the question that he will inevitably ask us one day. And the question is this. He says, if you knew, Jesus is asking us this. He says, Jesus says to us, if you knew who I was, how in the world did you ever think that you could know better how to live your life than me? And then Keller says, there's no answer for that, actually. Because I remind us, not only were we made by God, but we were made for God. And so this season, RK family, will we enter and draw near we embrace this God who becomes with us and allow this season, allow him and the truth to change us in ways that we've never experienced. Now, I mentioned earlier, and I'm gonna just give you a moment to pray and then we're gonna go into a little bit of offering and then we have communion, we've got a lot of things going on, but I wanna just give you a, a brief moment to just pray a little bit. Because I wanna also, just full admittance, you know, we're all the same in this room. To embrace God in this type of way is going to cost you something, for sure. And I think most of us in this room actually know what that is. It may be some freedom, it may be some control, it may be a hope or a dream or some other things. And there may be a host of different things. But can I encourage you and challenge you to take one of those things that you know is holding you back and then to actually say, God, I don't want this to hold me back anymore. And then to admit that. And then to follow it up and say, God, I want you to be with me. Whatever that means. Whatever that's going to look like. For some of us, I think in the room, maybe parents, for being honest, that's providing our kids with like this beautiful Christmas with lots of presents and all these things. Being able to tell ourselves that we provided and we gave our kids the best Christmas or the best whatever. For many of the young adults in here, it might be that you want to really just go and really just enjoy like all the beauty of the season and live up all the relationship and all these things. 
for a lot of the students in here may be that you're just really looking forward to break. Whatever it is, can I challenge you, encourage you as one family to take that, just one thing, start off with just one thing, you're not gonna do them all, and say, God, this I no longer want to keep me from you. Help me to deal with the fact that you came all this way to be with me and help me to do what I can, to respond in the ways that I can, to be in the us and find that the us are the people who just draw near with nothing. Maybe the secret is we need to come with nothing and we don't wanna do that. But whatever it is, I'm gonna give you a moment or two just to pray that. And then we'll pray for the offering And then I'm gonna invite you to take communion as a remembrance of what Jesus did to allow us to be able to pray this way and to have him in this manner. So will you pray for a couple minutes and then we'll move on with the rest of the service? Draw near and learn to embrace the God who has come to be with you.